The Arts of the San Joaquin Valley is a program that focuses on the arts community from Stockton to Merced and Foothill to Foothill. We talk with local authors, poets, playwrights, fine artists, actors, directors, filmmakers, dancers, musicians, crafters, and makers to learn more about their art and the arts-related events here in our part of the valley. We're your hosts, Linda Scheller. And I'm Sandy Graham. If you're involved in the greater arts community of our area and would like to be featured, we will share our contact information at the end of the show. Today we're talking with Julia Sankey, a professor at California State University Stanislaus and the author of a new book from Dowager Press entitled The Giant Spike-Toothed Salmon and Other Extinct Wildlife of Central California. The book is co-authored and beautifully illustrated by Jacob Bewer. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the book first, Julia? Sure. Um, This is a book that I wrote for the general public, specifically for the people of Stanislaus County, about the local fossils, and in particular about this giant spike-toothed salmon that was six to nine feet long and had tusks. Um, sticking out of its front of the mouth and 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 other wildlife that lived around here five million years ago giant tortoises giant bears etc etc and I, I realized that the locals did not know about the local fossils and the local geology so we wrote it for them that is fascinating oh that's great so five million years ago you said yes this was the uh early Pliocene epoch? Yeah, this is the, um, the, 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 it's in the Pliocene. Um, the climate was much warmer than today. It was during a global greenhouse and much more, much warmer and, and wetter in this area. The Sierras were smaller. The coastal range was much smaller Hmm. and there was an inland seaway at Bakersfield. Oh. Yeah. So the rocks that we are studying are exposed at the elevation of Knights Ferry, Turlock Lake, um, and they extend all the way from Sacramento to Merced, and they're full of fossil mammals, plants, etc. Uh-huh. Those rocks below Modesto are, are an important part of the aquifer, so hmm. they are subsurface below this city. That's great. Um, and I also read online that the Tuolumne and Stanislaus rivers used to flow in a different direction than they do now. Right. How did so, that happen? Right. So the, the rivers five million years ago still flowed from the early mountains to the east of us, and they flowed downhill. But then once they got into the central valley, they flowed to the south. And they flowed to the south and entered this marine embayment at Bakersfield. And then at a certain point, I think if I remember right, about 400,000 years ago, they switched directions. The San Joaquin started flowing to the north and entered the San Francisco Bay as it does today. Yeah, so our giant salmon migrated just like modern salmon do today, but it migrated up from Bakersfield and then up into the old rivers, the Stanislaus, the the Tuolumne, etc. Oh my. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, and were there active volcanoes here as well? Yeah. At that time, there were active volcanoes erupting in, um, the, in the mountains to the east of us. And as you know, as you drive up to Sonora, mm-hmm. um, you, you go past Table Mountain. Those are basalt. Those are volcanic um, flows that flow down the old Stanislaus River. Oh, yes. Filled it up, diverted it 
And those came from these old volcanoes. So they diverted the river then? That's right. Wow. Gosh, this is so interesting. So you mentioned a few of the species of land animals that mm-hmm. are now extinct. Bears, you said, were these giant bears? Yeah, so you picture basically what African wildlife looks like today. And we had a lot of those mammals here, similar mammals. We had giant ground sloths, oh. the size of EW bugs and the size of bears. We had massive bears. We had Galapagos-sized tortoises. Um, we on had- land? On land. Oh, gosh. Wandering around. We had thousands and thousands of horses. Um, lots of antelope, lots of carnivores eating them up. Hyenas, uh, cats. Elephants? Um, yeah, relatives to elephants, mastodons. Now, what happened to all these species? Why did they well, die out? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a good question. We don't know the answer to some of those extinctions. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. Maybe that'll be in the second book. Okay. <laughs> Well, I look forward to that. So you described this giant spike-toothed salmon as being very large and having tusks. What what else do we know about its appearance? Like, <coughs> do we have an estimate how much it might have weighed? Yeah, or? so picture what salmon look like today. Um, but these were six to nine feet long. They were huge. They were big and fat, 500 pounds. Um, they were massive. And in their mouth, they had these fist-sized uh, teeth that stuck out. Now they were described by other scientists. We contributed a little bit of information about them, but, but they've been known for years. And fossils from them have been found from California, Oregon, and Washington, from marine deposits as well as freshwater deposits. But they were massive. So if you'd, you'd caught one, you would have eaten for weeks. <laughs> but they migrated. They migrated just like salmon do today. You know that modern salmon, they are born in freshwater streams. Mm-hmm just like they are in the Stanislaus River and the Tuolumne River. And then they eventually um, go out to the ocean where they are for several years. And then eventually they decide to go back, and you know this, they spawn where they were born. Yeah. And before they migrate up the rivers, they actually physically change. Their really? skull changes, they, they change color. They actually physically change. I have good fo- illustrations of what it looks like. They physically change before they migrate back to their nesting home. And um, so you can imagine these proto-rivers, the proto-Tuolumne, bigger rivers in the fall and the spring would have been full of these massive salmon. Oh, what a sight. Do we know, do we have an idea what they ate or how they got their food? Yeah, so this was unusual. There were a lot of strange things about this salmon. They were planktivorous. That means they ate plankton. They filter fed like basking sharks, like blue whales and we know that through the anatomy of their skull they have um and so they were they were these in the in the ocean they would have been these massive filter feeders and often filter feeders get really big Mm. Uh, but 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 and that i didn't figure out that was figured out by fish paleontologists but studying their skulls and comparing Mm. them to modern fish that eat plankton Wow. Did they eat once they returned to the freshwater? No, not that we know of. They are very similar to the species of salmon we still have around today? They're in the same genus. They're related, but they are different species. Yeah, but they're in the same genus. Oh, great. Yeah. Now, I read also that in 1957 through 1964, a man named Dennis Garber 
found fossilized teeth and bones uh, on a beach in the southeastern shore of Turlock Lake. Is that how this all got started? That's right. That's right. So a lot of the book uh, writes, uh, we write about Dennis Garber. Dennis Garber, if, if it hadn't been for him, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't know about any of these fossils. So Dennis Garber grew up, he's still alive. He grew up on a an almond and a walnut orchard where he still lives outside of Modesto. He's 84. When he was 15, his uncle took him out to Turlock Lake and he found his first fossil. Oh. And he was hooked, completely hooked. And he has collected the rest of his life. He early on, and we write about it in this book, he sent fossils that he found, this was a long time ago, this was in the 50s, to um, UC Berkeley. And they identified them for him. And then he started donating his fossils to the UC Berkeley Museum of Paleontology's oh, collection. He ended up going to UC Davis and becoming a soil scientist. And he worked there his whole life. But on weekends, he would come home and go out and collect. He told me once he never took a vacation. Hmm. He would go out with his boat and collect fossils. Oh. And he's, um, he, he's collected literally thousands and thousands of fossils. He's donated them to two museums, one in Los Angeles and one in Berkeley. And he was the, he, he was the one that found all of the giant salmon fossils from here. Were there any indications that this extinct species had existed before he found those fossils or was he the one that so they were found yeah it's a good question they were found in oregon washington and california he found the ones out at turlock lake okay and that the description when you name a new species Mm -hmm. you um have certain specimens that you use to describe it his specimens from turlock lake are part of the description for that species. So it was an important, really important contribution that no one here knows about. Yes. Well, <laughs> one I'm of so... the reasons we wrote the book. That is great. And he's still alive today. He's still alive oh, today. I'm and in to fact, I just visited him a few weeks ago. Oh, he'll have to listen to this show. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, what do you and other uh, paleontologists believe this huge spiked tooth was used for? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, in, in evolution, you don't see structures like that tooth that don't have a purpose because that's a waste of energy. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was used for something. And the original ideas were fighting, which is what male salmon do today when, they, when the females are nesting. There's uh-huh. tons of fighting and biting and lots of fighting. And that makes sense. They stuck straight out of their jaws, straight out. Um, we think... Just like salmon today migrate up fast-flowing rivers, mm-hmm. and then they do their spawning, we think they might have also used them to help maybe p- perhaps dig the little nests ah. in the gravel and the cobbles, maybe even keeping them um, from getting pushed away down current. Hmm. We don't know, but they definitely had a function, yes. fighting is a very likely function, but there may have been some other ones. Oh, that is interesting. Well, um, so how did you become interested in the giant spike-toothed Yeah, it was a complete fluke. And uh, I, so just a quick, try try to make it quick. So about um, four or five years ago, the the California State University Stanislaus got a $5 million grant from the Department of Ed to um, recruit and retain more students in science. Great. And so, and we've just gotten a second one. Good. And so, I had a group of students who I was about to, uh, I was beginning to do research with, 
And we were going to work on a different project, but on the spot of the last minute, we decided to start working on the local fossils. And we went to UC Berkeley for, I think it was a week, to study all of the fossils that Dennis had donated. We didn't know about Dennis at that point. Hmm. We were going through the drawers of fossils. Horse teeth, horse jaws, you know, normal stuff. And suddenly we come across this drawer with these massive teeth. So the teeth, the, the, the um, roots the size of your fist. And the teeth are like two inches long. Oh my. And I remember Jake pulling out and we're looking at it going, what's that? <laughs> he pulls out his phone like all teenagers have and Googled it, right? Immediately. Mm-hmm. And immediately came up. It was this, you know, he Googled the name. It was this giant salmon. We're like, oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> and we were like, huh, that's really cool. And that's what, that's how it started. Um, and so we spent the rest of the, the semester, this is spring semester, just diving into the literature, seeing what was known about it, and realizing that the original site was just 40 minutes from campus. That's and that's how we started. Uh-huh. And then um, you took a team out there and examined fossils yeah. in the field? Yeah, so the, the first thing we did was we wanted to go see the site where the fossils were found, but it's on the other side of the lake, and there was only, there's no way to get there except through private land. And so the first... The first trip was through private land, and we soon realized this was a pain to contact the private landowner every time we wanted to go out and examine the site. So we got kayaks and started kayaking across the lake to get to the site. And so we spent the first year or so um, working on a paper about the giant salmon and the site and the what we call the Proto-Tuolumne River. And we also worked on a, a second paper on the giant tortoise and going back to the sites where the giant tortoises were found. Could you describe field work? Yeah, well, it's different at Turlock Lake. <laughs> we have boats. And, <laughs> and you fun. have, it was really fun. And, but you could only carry, you know, what you could put in your kayak. Mm-hmm. And funny things would happen, like students would drop their phones, right? <laughs> and I, you know, once I tipped over and, oh. and lost a lot of things. So it's, you know, it's really fun in kayaks, but mm-hmm. it's a little risky. But what we were doing was we were describing the the geology. The fossils, Dennis had collected so many Mm -hmm. that the chances of of us finding something new were pretty slim. But what hadn't really been done was was to describe the rocks that they were coming from. And so we would go out. One of the things that we had to do was redocument all the sites. There were, we could find no field notes for the site. So we refound them, photographed them, described the rocks and that sort of thing. So we did that all around the lake. The students have then had coursework <laughs> in, in geology and they I think had, doctors yeah, in Yeah, they had some, but there's also, you know, learning by doing. Sure, and that's the best way. Yeah, right. Oh, I bet that was wonderful. It was fun. What a great experience. It was really, really fun. I also read there was a display at the Great Valley Museum in 2015. Were you behind yeah, that? Yeah, no, Jake Jake did the display. I think it's been taken down. I heard through a friend of mine, uh, but it was basically, uh, he printed out a life-size poster of the salmon mm-hmm. and then had some other photographs and images about the, the research project. Yeah, it said it was called Monsters in Your Backyard, That's right. Giant Fossil Salmon and Tortoises, from Turlock Lake. Right. I'm sorry I missed that, but I bet a lot of our listeners did see it. I hope so. And we're selling the book at the Great Valley Museum bookstore. So Good. Good. Good to know. So you met Jacob because he was a student of yours? Yeah. Jake um, was a student at MJC, and he transferred to CSU Stanislaus to study paleontology. And he um, worked on the grant with me. 
and basically became my right-hand person and, and collaborator. This was a new project for me, so we were learning new stuff together. I didn't know much more than he did. So it was an amazing collaboration. And there were other students involved that started uh, at the same time or after Jake started. He was there about three years, and now he's in graduate school. Very good. A description of the book I saw online, and I noticed there are lots of really wonderful reviews. It's very well received. It says it's about extinct organisms, fossilization, and the paleontologists who discovered them. Do you think that the readers are going to need to have a strong background no, in science? No, not at all. We wrote it for the grandmothers in Knight's Ferry. You know, we wrote it for the general public, and you don't have to have any background knowledge before you read it. The other day at the book sale, somebody at Modesto Library, somebody asked me if it was a children's book. It's not a children's book, but children would understand it. Good. I wrote it for the general public. I, I use it in my classes. I used it this semester for the first time, and it was the first thing they read. So I think you don't need any introductory background to read and understand this oh, book. Great. Actually, would you like to read an excerpt? Sure. For so this, this one is about the salmon, a uh, description of the salmon. A giant salmon with spiked teeth a couple inches long and wide that stuck straight out of its from its snout. That would have been quite a sight to see as it fought and stabbed other salmon during spawning season. This behemoth lived in the Pacific Ocean. It has been found in marine and freshwater deposits from California to Washington. It lived from the mid-Miocene to early Pliocene, or about 12 to 5 million years ago, and migrated up rivers to spawn. It was actually a filter feeder, um, only eating small plankton in the ocean. And um, let me see what else. Our, okay, our giant salmon got immense. Estimates of its size range from six to nine feet in length and over 550 pounds. These salmon would have made quite a meal. We like to picture the Proto-Tuolumne River full of these giant salmon fighting and spawning and with extinct giant bears scooping up salmon to feast on. Ooh, that's vivid. I think by now probably some of our listeners want to become scientists themselves and they're going to want to know more about paleontology. I loved paleontology when I was a child. What would you suggest for anybody who's starting to think about a career in science or at least wants to know more about science, even if they're an adult like me? Yeah, I mean, that's I got interested in science as a little kid. There was a, I was reading National Geographic last night and there was one article about Jane Goodall, and it was, that was, she was one of my early inspirations, you know. So, I mean, I think science is an incredibly creative field. We often think of it as memorization, but it, it, it's partly that, but it's also very creative. Um, and it's also um, figuring out puzzles, especially yeah. pale paleontology, where things ha that have happened five million years ago, 65 million years ago, and you have to use clues to figure out what happened. Yeah. I find it really fun. Yeah, I guess being curious would be exactly. a really good quality yeah. and persistence. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it sounds great. Well, could you tell us a little bit about your educational path then? Sure. Let's see, I grew up in Santa Barbara, California in Southern Cal, and believe it or not, I haven't told many students this. I dropped out of high school when I was 16. <laughs> yeah, and I don't really, I can't really tell you why, but I ended up going to um, UCSB and then Santa Barbara City College, and then ended up going on a Earthwatch expedition to Baja, where um, 
the scientist was using volunteers and they recruited me to go to college in Idaho. And it was a small college where I got a lot of attention and finally I started doing well in college. So I did a, a bachelor's in, in biology, but I also took two really great geology classes. And I realized that my interest um, in paleontology kind of combined both those fields mm, perfect. perfectly. And so I did a master's and a PhD in paleontology and geology. Um, so paleontology is a combination of a bunch of different scientific fields. So that was, that was my path. Oh, great. You've done a lot of scientific research. I've seen academic publications online. So at what point did you decide this, it's time to address the general audience and give everyone a better look yeah, at what I, used to be here? I don't know where I got this idea. I might have gotten it from Dennis Garber, the local collector. I remember he mentioned that he would, have, he'd lo he would love the idea of having a book come out. I don't know where I got the idea, but... I just I, I had just been thinking about it and I was I was due for a sabbatical mm -hmm. so we get to take a semester off to write and I um, I decided to spend my last sabbatical last fall writing up our research into this book for the general public and it was a lot of fun it was it was really fun to try to explain what we had done in as simple of language as we could and so that's what we did. And Jake had, I got to hire Jake to do the illustrations for the book. They're gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. What medium did he use? He, I think what he did was he would draw and then he'd scan it on his laptop. He's a whiz. Wow. And then he would color it in on his laptop. They are just and funny, funny story about Jake, the very first semester um, that he had transferred, very first test he took, on the back of the test, there was an essay question. It was in my dinosaur class, and I, when I was grading it, he had missed the question, but he had drawn this peach or something. And normally, I would just have given the student a zero, but I decided to ask him if he had, and he had he had missed the question. He hadn't seen it. Oh. He just saw it was a blank. But he had drawn this nice little illustration, so I knew he was, he could draw. Mm. And he he loves to he loves to do art. He's not, I think he's more serious about his science, but he loves to do art. He's a young renaissance man, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. What did you find, if anything, challenging about writing The Great Spike-Tooth Salmon? That's a good question. It went really fast. Good. You know, we, there were a lot of other things to write. There, there were chapters I could have written about them, or we could have written about the mammals, the horses, the rhinos, etc. Um, but we chose to stop and keep it kind of sl slim and maybe do a second volume on another topic later. Good. But um, no, it was, it was really fun. And, um, and I, I, I might do another one again sometime. I hope so. And what are some of the best things about having a book published, especially a book that we here in this area can really appreciate? Well, you know, as far as, yeah, I'm trying to get it out to the local public. We were talking about that on Saturday at the mm -hmm. book fair. It's, it's, it's challenging to figure out how to get it out to the local public. We mm -hmm. don't have that many bookstores, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So that's been a challenge. And I've sent it out to various places to try to get it out there. And then I realized I have book, I have students, and I have a captive audience, and I can make them read it. So, <laughs> so I've had the bookstore um, Xerox black and white copies of it so that the students can get a cheap version of it. And it's been really fun to teach from it. 
because oh, okay. it's local and I think they find it more relevant. Oh, sure. Where can um, the listening public obtain your book? Yeah, then? through Amazon. Good. Yeah. So just go to Amazon and, and just search under Sankey or Spike Tooth Salmon and you'll find the book. And Sankey, S-A-N-K-E-Y. Yes. Would you like to read another egg? Sure. I have one other one highlighted and I'll read parts of it. So uh, this is in the preface uh, talking about this area five, five to ten million years ago would have looked radically different. The Sierra Nevada mountains would be much smaller. Uh, we would call them the a Nevada Plano and volcanoes would be erupting in the area that is now the California-Nevada border. Lavas erupting from these volcanoes would be flowing down ancient river channels and diverting those their courses. At times these mighty there, these would be mighty rivers having heaving cobbles and ripping up the landscape during flooding events during the winter and spring. Um, looking more closely in these ancient rivers, especially in the spring and fall, one would see the kings of the river, these massive six to nine foot long spike tooth salmon launching themselves through the rocky obstacle course upstream to spawn while evading the clutches of bears. And it goes on to talk about the other, the animals, the horses, the the mastodons, the camels, the giant ground sloths that were here five million years ago. That is fascinating. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Julia, for talking with us today. One last thing. Um, you're going to be at the Manteca Book Fest, too, aren't you? That's right. Good. And that's October 14th, I believe, Saturday. It's um, right there where the Bass Outlet is. And so... Our listeners can go and meet you and get an autographed copy of sure. your book. Sure, yeah. Great. Sounds good. Thank you, Linda. Well, it was really you. fun. Peter Magazinovich is an author and retired junior high school teacher who lives and writes here in the San Joaquin Valley. Thank you for agreeing to be our guest today, Pete, and congratulations on the pending publication of your first book, A King's Grave. My pleasure. Thank you very much for being here. Please tell us about your forthcoming book. Well, it's, uh, it's a historical fiction drama, and of course, uh, if people like adventure, this is just the book for them. I wrote I wrote it as an adventure piece, and I'm I hope that people will enjoy it. I think they will. I'm sure they will. And where did you get the idea for this novella? <laughs> oh, that's a nice little backstory. It, my mother and I, uh, we we talk. Very often, she lives thousands of miles away, and she's an avid reader. She loves the literature, and she said, you know, your grandmother really liked this one particular poem. I think you should have a look at it. So I researched it, found it, and it was called A Grave in the Buzento, and it's an 18-line poem, and as I was reading it, this entire story was mushroom clouding in my mind, and I said, I've got to write this and it became a king's grave. And what language was this poem from? It was, it was German and the, the copies I found were both in German and English and pardon my bias but I preferred the German version better. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're fluent in German, right? Yes, I am. Well, that sounds like a wonderful, wonderful way to get an idea for a book. Mm. So mm. how long did it take for you to write this? Actually, uh, my total involvement from beginning to end was almost two years, almost two years. I initially submitted it as a short story and the publisher who accepted it said, 
this has merit, we think it should become a standalone book. And uh, after my ego calmed down a bit, <laughs> I said, wait a minute, how does a 30-page short story become a book? And With they said, a lot of work. <laughs> and they said, well, that's where you come in. That's where you come in. You have to expand it. So I did expand it. So that, that was, I had to go back almost to square one, you know, oh. rethink new chapters, extend previous chapters, come up with new characters, figure out where that those characters need to be introduced in the original part of what I wrote. And that, so it made a good continuum to the end. So it made a satisfying ending. So altogether, it took me about two years. That's, that's really admirable. And how did you choose to submit this manuscript initially to this publisher? I, I belong to an online group called Authors Publish. And they, every seven to ten days, they, they publish a new edition online. And they always manage to inform the writers that there are these publishers looking for particular types of uh, writing. Hmm. And it turns out that one of the three that, uh, that they, had, they were promoting at the time accepted my work. It was just random. It was, was this the first place you, pub no, you submitted no, to? No, I had actually submitted that three other places before. Uh -huh, but still, that's really good. That is good. That was uh, a stroke of Extraordinary. Luck. <laughs> extraordinary luck. Does it cost anything to be a member of Authors Publish? Not at all. So Just look it up on the, on, on the internet and you can start today. Well, I hope our listeners who are writers <laughs> and want to be published will go and look up Authors Publish. That's a great tip. Thank you. You're welcome. So, you wrote the story and then two years later it was finished that must have been quite a demanding process did it did it take you a lot of extra effort to come up with these additional scenes and characters and flesh it out uh, it was what more than double the size when you were done oh yeah yeah i've received word that the book will end up with 104 pages oh. it'll be 104 pages long from 30 from 30. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yes, I did have to go back and do further research, deeper research, uh, about the characters and about what was happening. It's a historical piece, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm a history teacher and I like research anyway. I can't stop learning and uh -huh. reading and la la la. Oh, good. So I even found a few uh, documentaries that had been made by the History Channel concerning this particular Gothic king. Oh, wonderful. So I, I gleaned information from that, I gleaned information from from uh, Wikipedia, I gleaned information from the public library, and I gleaned information from some of the old textbooks I still have. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. And that's where I came up with new characters, new ways, of, and my new ideas came from there. That's great. So what's the expected release date, and in what formats will your book be published? It's expected to be released just before Christmas. And it's going to be uh, on bookstore shelves, and it's going to be uh, on shelves in places like Target, places like uh, Walmart, and, I, and a few other places that I can't keep track of right now. <laughs> and also on ebook, it'll be on Amazon, and uh, oh, and public libraries. There, it's also going to be pitched at the public libraries across the country. So I'm hoping that works out. Too. And your publisher will do all that for you. Yes. Oh, good. That is great. That's part of our agreement. So you did a lot of research, and um, 
what is exactly the book's setting? I mean, when did this actual historical incident take place? Well, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> it takes place in the year 409 AD, which is only like 50 or 60 years before the fall of the Western Roman Empire, hmm. all of Europe, that part of the Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire continued for another thousand years in Constantinople. But the Western Roman Empire, because of internal corruption, was hmm. falling apart already. Sounds familiar. I, I think I've heard <laughs> this story before. <laughs> <laughs> Why you history buff you? <laughs> and so uh, a Gothic king wanted over and over again to have a peace agreement with Rome. Hmm. And over and over again, because of arrogance and avarice and hedonism of the Roman Emperor, it didn't happen. And the Gothic king always wanted to try to push to be called the protectorate, the protector of the eastern part of the Western Roman Empire, all of the Danube Valley, uh -huh. all the Gothic tribes. He mm -hmm. wanted to be the protectorate for Rome, the buffer state, I see. to keep others out. Hmm. But but we'll it, have it to read your out. book to yeah, find out what happened. It didn't happens. quite work out that way. Huh. So could you please describe this king for us, the protagonist of your book? Okay, sure. Of course, you have to realize it's called A King's Grave. Mm -hmm. The king dies in the first three pages. Okay, so he's not the only protagonist. I see. Okay, the rest of the story is unveiled after he dies, oh, okay. in retrospect, mm -hmm. and then it sets it up to, so that a new person can take over who will follow all the edicts and rules of the original king uh -huh. because he honored him so much. Okay, so did I answer your question? Yeah. Did I? Okay. Um, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> For you, what was one of the most enjoyable aspects of writing this book? Oh, uh, the most enjoyable aspect of it was, uh, given given the results of the research, I was just able to let my creative side just go and just do all kinds of wonderful things that ended up being, ended up actually fitting the historical facts involved with this king. And it was just great to be able to put that creative energy to work like that. It was just so much fun. I, I bet. It. What was most difficult about the writing of the book or the rewriting of the book? Uh, the most difficult was that I, I uh, was the fact that I had to expand from an original short story of 29, 30 pages and come up with a whole new idea, mm. uh, create a whole different set of scenes and chapters and characters. And that, that, that was tough. That, for me, that was tough. It, it took, I, I, had to, I had to take myself out of my original intent. I see. And put myself into a new intent. Mm, mm -hmm. Expand the horizons. Mm -hmm. So, um, in terms of your own life, your interests, your experiences, what contributed to the writing of this story? Well, I can't imagine that being a history teacher had anything to do with it at oh, all. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it had a lot. But other hobbies, perhaps? Oh, oh. well, I've tried to be a writer 
for at least 40 years. I became very interested a long time ago in, in a small town called Turlock uh -huh. with a bunch of people who wanted to do nothing but write. And so from then, that moment forward, I, I started to be writing short story, very short stories. Well, today would be called flash fiction and a few prose poems and then I ex began to expand as, as I understood things better I was able to write more longer pieces. Well I was also thinking about the fact that during this time of history um, men rode horses, they carried swords. Do you know anything about either of those? Oh yeah I've owned a couple of horses myself. Okay that can't <laughs> hurt. I've been sword fighting since I was nine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and more, most recently, I, I have turned fr away from competition. Most recently, that's only 20 years ago. Uh -huh. Turned away from competition and turned towards choreography. Mm, I, nice. I stopped. I realized competition was not where. Yes. Not, not necessary. So I went to the idea of nobody gets hurt. Everybody good. put on a good show. You know? Oh, so you're choreographing fight scenes for um, theater productions? A few. A That's few. wonderful. Yeah. That's an, another excellent creative endeavor. And I'm sure having, you know, this lifelong experience made the writing that much easier. Oh, you could, yes, it you did. You know, you yeah. could imagine yourself in the place of, let's say, dueling or, or fighting to the death characters. So that lends great authenticity to your writing. Yes, it does. And I knew exactly how far to go so people would not get hurt. Ah, okay. So in your childhood, was there a lot of storytelling? Was that important in your in your family? Absolutely. <laughs> Without a doubt. You know, both my parents would tell us stories. My my mom my dad would tell us stories from his memory and most of his stories were based were sl he, Slavic mm -hmm. stories fairy tales, mostly fairy tales, and my mom would actually read from Grimm's fairy tales in German to her, t we, there were two of us, my brother and I, mm -hmm. and they, that's what, how they would, that's how we'd fall asleep, we'd be listening to them either retelling a story or reading a story, so it was firmly entrenched in my little brain <laughs> way back then. That's so important, and when you were a child, did you ever think you'd be an author? Actually, no, no. I was. We were immigrants, and I was. I was focusing more on learning this new language. It was. Uh, it wasn't easy, but I enjoyed the challenge of, of reading children's books and figuring out from context. Oh, that word must mean this. This word must mean that. Mm. And that gave me a great thrill to be able to figure out words from context. Ah, very good. So, for our listeners who might be interested in helping to develop a child's imagination and creativity. What suggestions might you have for them? I would tell, I would say that more, most often I think we are our own gatekeepers. We don't allow ourselves to just open, throw open the gate and be as creative as we possibly can. You know, just be as creative. Take. Take a chance. Go outside your, your, your friendly inner zone and reach out and see what you can create. You know, just, it doesn't matter where. You can create something in any situation, in any moment of the day. Something can strike your fancy and you can go, wow, 
this person's going to be a priestess in my next book. Oh, I see. And as far as bringing up children and encouraging children, oh, yes. would you oh. express these thoughts out loud to them and say, oh, see that person? I can imagine her growing up to be a priestess or, and I presume storytelling, reading books, um, yep. anything else that, that anyone who's in the, you know, either business of caring for children or has their own children and, and really wants them to grow up to be creative, what, what can they do? Well, I would highly suggest uh, there are library programs, right, in, er, in every town. That's right. That have storytelling. Mm -hmm. And they are designed to appeal to the younger generation. And that would be a wonderful way to get children interested and uh, open their own creative juices and let uh -huh. them flow. And, and it wouldn't be long before they, you, you would see them, I'm sure, the young ones, sitting there trying to write something. That's a great suggestion. Thank you. What are you writing right now? What's your current project? Oh, okay. I, I, my, my approach to project is, is like this. I find it most calming mm -hmm. to have several projects going at the same time. That way I'm, one, I'm never totally overwhelmed <coughs> with one. And eventually, usually three, I usually have three going at the same time, oh. and usually one will stand out, and that's the one that captures me, mm -hmm. and I have to finish that one. But if I need a rest, the other two are still there, that's and that, that calms my mind. It, mm -hmm. may, it, ha it actually resets my creative juices again, and that's just how I, that's how I do it. And right now, I'm working on something called the Scheller's Bell. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, again, partly historic because it has to do with Charlemagne and his private tutor named Alcuin. And together, they eventually came up with the notion that we today call public school. Isn't that the guy we all should hate? Oh, no. <laughs> That's the guy we should love. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to reveal any more about no, the story at this no. moment. Mm -hmm. but but I'm working on that, and uh, maybe it's fun. It's and music? Do you have? Are you composing music? Maybe I'm, from I'm time playing to time? music. I'm trying to learn uh, Creole music at the moment. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> on the accordion. On right? the accordion, of oh, course. Oh, good. On the accordion. Well, when a King's Grave is released, um, our listeners can then, if they can't find it right away in a store, they can go to Amazon. Then. Yes, they can. They can go to Amazon. And some of the local department stores, uh, like Walmart, Target, they, they have a book section, mm -hmm. and they will be in those book sections as well. All right, good. Um, would you kindly read us an excerpt from A King's Grave? Oh, okay, you twisted my arm. All right, thank you. <laughs> Otto watched his king rise and slowly pace the length of his tent twice before stopping in front of him and gently put his hand on his shoulder. I know how difficult it was for you to say what you just said, but a king's orders must be followed. Friend, brother, warlord, gather all the chieftains in the camp center. As soon as I have washed the filth of battle off of me, I will join you there. Ataulf looked at his king in the eyes. Yes, my lord. He turned to leave and heard his friend whisper behind him, take heart. Soon Alaraik stood in the table on the center of the camp wearing his king's tunic and crown. One of our own violated our ways, taking captive a Roman woman as his spoil, 
to be a slave. Sarus stood alone facing his king, Gothic men and women behind him. We have been slaves to the Romans before, Alaric continued. We cannot suffer any as having cannot suffer any of us having a slave, Roman or any other. So I say, if Saros gives up his Roman slave, he may stay among us. Agreed? The Goths nodded. Some called out, yes. But for disobeying the king's order concerning torture, he can no longer be a chieftain. Another will replace him. He will not have chieftains we cannot trust to carry out our orders. Alaric turned his focus on Saurus. Come forward, surrender your chieftain's tunic. Head held high, Saurus slowly walked towards Alaric's table, pulling off his still new leather tunic. He stopped short and threw the tunic to the ground. And the woman, asked the king, take her for yourself, Saurus spat on the ground. Alaric answered calmly, no. The woman will be sent back with her people to Rome, and you, Saros, must be a soldier for whichever chieftain will have you in his ranks. King Alaric waved his arm at the assembled Goths. All remained silent, the Gothic king continued. Among the Christian sect there is a saying, you reap what you sow. The chieftains have spoken. Saros spun and pointed at the assembled Goths. You will rue your silence. He whirled and faced the figure standing on the table. And so will you, Alaric. Alaric continued, You have two days to gather your weapons and belongings, after which you must be gone. Saros roared, I leave tonight. He spat on his tunic as he left for his tent. Alaric jumped down from his table, removed his crown, picked up the soiled tunic, walked to where his friend stood. He handed his warlord the tunic. Choose as a chieftain. Uh, Ataulf took the tunic and whispered, Yes, my king, thank you for not having Saros executed. That decision, my friend, was because of you. Alaric turned to watch Saros' angry retreating figure. Perhaps, when he has been wisened by time, he may choose to return to us and be useful. That is excellent. Bravo, Pete. I can't wait to read this. That's great. Thank well, thank you. Thank you very much. With your interest in history and uh, world cultures, I can see very strongly that this influences your writing, your other pursuits. What do you think are some of the most important lessons that we humans should learn from the past? Uh, I'm going to make a trite answer, and then I'll give you a full answer. Okay. <laughs> we shouldn't mess up. That's the trite answer. The full answer is that History is no more than a guide. Everything that we humans ever think of today was thought of thousands of years ago, and they've been chronicled. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is take the time to look through those chronicles, and we will find solutions to current problems, because humanity is still humanity. Mm. We are all subject to the same goodness and all subject to the same not-so-goodness. And that hasn't changed. The, the amount of not-so-goodness and the amount of goodness in quantity hasn't changed. So, if we want answers, read your history. <laughs> <laughs> Point taken. And do you believe that storytelling is still important? Why or why not? Well, let me get over that goosebump. <laughs> 
Uh, of course, it's important. It, I think it's it, uh, in many ways it has become a lost art. Hmm. Uh, there were I remember as a child going to to f to different fairs, mm -hmm. and there would be a storyteller. There would be at least one storyteller at, at every fair, and it was always some that person. Male or female was always surrounded by all kinds of people. They couldn't wait. For not this just children. Not just children. Adults and children couldn't wait for this person to recite from memory, mostly recite from memory and very with a very expressive voice, retell a tale that everybody could envision in their head, mm -hmm. and just through the human voice, you know, using voice body motion, body language, tone of voice, expression of the face, telling stories. And I, I really think that uh, we need to bring that back mm, yes. because I think we owe our kids the opportunity to, to at least experience that. And then I believe that would uh, light a few fires and they might want to begin telling stories, sure. fun stories, good stories. That does sound wonderful. Thank you so much, Pete. Uh, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Again, uh, Pete's book, which will be out before Christmas, is entitled A King's Grave. Peter Magzinovich, thank you and congratulations again. Thank you very much, Linda. I'm at the Book Fest in Manteca, and I'm talking to authors here. Here's our first author. What's your name? Antoinette Melendez. And what is the name of your book? Too Much McTiggle. Could you tell us a little about it, please? Sure. It's the story of a little black Scottish terrier puppy who felt he would never be accepted because of the way he looked. He had a droopy left ear, a too big nose, and short stubby legs. But, we, but soon he found out that that wasn't the problem at all. The problem was he's just too much puppy, meaning he just gets into everything. Until one day an elderly couple adopts him and they then they find out that he is too much puppy so you'll have to read the book to see whether or not they keep him or not what ages is this book geared for um it's for ages four to eight but we're all children so anyone can read it great <laughs> and how can our listeners get a copy um they can go to my website at http uh, colon backslash backslash too much com or they can go to dart frog books and it's there it's there also oh thank you so much oh, you're welcome. have a great day okay thank you here's another author uh, what's your name please my name is Margie Vieira and what are the books that you have here today at the book fest the books that I have are my first one is seeing again through the eyes of a child and then my second novel a hidden puzzle and they're both stories, novels? They're both novels. The stories are interlinked, but they stand alone. Oh. You can read the second or the first. You don't have to read them in order. However, they're similar to a Nicholas Sparks notebook and the wedding, where family kind of rolls into the second one, the second story. And where can our listeners obtain a copy of your book? Virtually everywhere online. Okay. Amazon, it's on Nook, Kindle, iBook, everywhere. Good. Well, yeah. thank you, Margie Vieira. It's such a pleasure to talk it to you. It was nice talking to you, too. Thanks. Thank you. And what is your name? My name's Melissa Rett Costa. What's the name of your book? Scooter's Adventure. It's a true story about a cat who went on a long adventure and was uh, brought back home. Where can our listeners obtain your book? Barnes & Nobles, online, and at westbowpress.com.
Thank you so much, Melissa Rhett Costa. And what's your name? Moni Singh. What is the title of your book, Moni? White Lies, Dark Truth. What's your book about? It covers all areas from birth till death. So it's like a, uh, you know, roadmap to live this life beautifully because as you see in the world, people really don't know how to live their life. And they have a lot of questions like who is God, what is life, why all this, it's a sort of confusion. Yes. So this book directs you um, towards the right direction, which is, you know, going within and finding whatever questions and answers there are in life. There's nothing outside because the outside world is an illusion. Like you're an illusion for me, I'm an illusion uh, for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this book covers everything from birth till death, all areas, spirituality, sex, um, politics, uh, food, you name it, it covers everything. And where can our listeners obtain a copy of your book? Um, you can go online. It's available on Amazon in hardcover and Kindle edition. Great. Kindle edition is three ninety nine. Oh, good. What's the title again? White Lies, Dark Truth. Very good. Thank you so Thank much, you, Moni Singh. Thank you, Linda. My name is Yvonne Carter. I'm a young adult fantasy fiction author. Um, I have my short story, Starflame, that is published um, both in ebook and the print. Um, you can always get the ebook for free from my website. So go to yvonnecarter.com. And Carter is C A R D E R. Oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> and then you can sign up and you can get the free ebook version of it. And then I'm in the process of writing my full novel, which is Luminata which hopefully will be this year. <laughs> That's great. So thank you so much, Yvonne. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Me too. Hi, what's your name? Annalisa Nicole. And uh, what, what kind of books are you writing? I write contemporary romance. What are some of the titles of your contemporary romantic novels? I have two series. The first series I wrote is the Running Into Love series. There are a total of six novels and one novella. And then my second set is the A Different Road series, and there are three books in there. Where can our listeners obtain copies of your books? All of my books are available on Amazon.com, and you can also get them through my website at www.annalisanicole.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Annalisa Nicole. Thank you. So, and your name? John Saunders. What's the title of your book? True Holiness is Displayed in Love. Could you tell us a little about your book? It's a Bible study on 1 Corinthians 13, interspersed with personal stories and examples from my life. That's nice. And where can our listeners obtain a copy of your book? Uh, Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. Great. So they should look for John Saunders, S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. That's correct. Thank you and so much. And it's Halo Publishing International. Excellent. That's the publisher. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. Good morning. And your name? This is Jennifer Coons. She's the author of the books, and I'm Mitzi Coons. I'm the driver. Nice to meet you. What books have you written? She's got six children's books that she's written. Um, the very first one was Were You Born in That Chair? Uh, second one was A Box Full of Letters. Um, what was the next one? Paisley or Plaid, Haley's Dream, and then the, the newest one is a flip book, which has two stories in it, and they both two front pages, or two front 
covers. Oh, miles to the moon. I'm sorry, I forgot miles to the moon. That's impressive. Where can our listeners get copies of your books? Usually, um, you can get them through Amazon. You can get them through her webpage. You can get them through her Facebook, just by you know directly contacting her. So the um, last name, could you spell it, please? K U H N S. Jennifer Coons. K U H N S. Children's author at www.jennifercoons.net. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hi, what's your name? My name is Britt Nunes. And what are the titles of your books? Um, they are Etched, Hushed, and Idiosyncratic. What kind of books are these? They are young adult um, sci-fi books, a little bit dystopian. Where can our listeners obtain copies of your books? You can get all of them on Amazon. And again, your name is Britt Nunes. And last name, capital N-U-N-E-S. Yep. Great. Thank you so much, Britt. Yeah. Thank you. I'm Bonnie Phelps. I write contemporary romance and live here in the Central Valley. Great. What are the titles of some of your books? Uh, my first book is Julia Starr, which is going to be part of an e-book collection of 22 authors. Um, it's on sale now for 99 cents. And then I've written two that are part of a series of brothers who live in Texas. One is my rodeo man and the second book is my sexy veterinarian. Oh. And number three in the series is coming next year. Uh-huh. And so once again, where can listeners get your books? Um, I'm on a number of the major retailers, Amazon.com uh, and then also, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, uh, for the ebook versions, you can buy a paperback version on Amazon. So, they're widely available. Excellent. <laughs> so, Bonnie Phelps, thank you yes. very much. Nice meeting you. Nice to meet you. Well, good luck. Thank you. You too. What's your name? Noah Bertolero. And could you spell your last name, please? B as in boy, E-R-T-O-L-E-R-O. Thank you. Welcome. Noah, what's the name of your book? Hope's End, The Photographer's Journey. Oh, wonderful. You're a photographer? Uh, yeah, at the time that, that this is taking place, I would say yes. I considered myself a photographer. It was before digital, so now now everything went digital. I kind of, I don't take too many pictures, unless uh -huh. it's with my phone. Yeah. And uh, Everybody's a photographer now. Where can our listeners obtain your book? Uh, Amazon or uh, at anybertolero.com. So could you spell uh, your, your website, please? Uh, N-E-B-E-R-T-O-L-E-R-O.com. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Linda. The Arts of the San Joaquin Valley has been produced and hosted by Linda Scheller and Sandy Graham and features music by Kilobot, Waves of Wonder from the album Jazzy Lazy. You can learn more about their music at www.kilobot.de. That's K-I-E-L-O-B-O-T dot D-E. If you would like us to feature your art-related event, or if you would like to be featured on our show, contact us at arts at kcbpradio.org. Stay tuned for more great community radio brought to you by local volunteers, the Modesto Peace Life Center, and listeners like you. Please visit kcbpradio.org.
to show your support and to learn more about your community radio station. Catch you next time on the Arts of the San Joaquin Valley.